0: Side Chats, a podcast where communists sit down to shoot the shit about current events, history, political economy, and theory. This episode, we continue our close reading of Critique of the Gotha Program, and we are joined once again by Constance.
1: What's up, Constance?
2: Oh, so yet, yet, yet another uh, shift in the, the coal mines. Yeah. <laughs> Digging up why LaSalle is actually the cause of everything? Not really.
1: He's the avatar. He's the avatar of the great change.
2: What's so fascinating about like LaSalle is, um, especially you, since I, I've been like looking a little bit into Hess, is like, finding out how you can kind of like understand the sort of background that like LaSalle had and how it impacts what, you know, what Marx is criticizing here because for LaSalle, like there's a, so I yeah, I want to start off with this quote. This is, um this was when like LaSalle was quite young and like a letter to his father, but I think it's, um is it it's good to have this in mind and keep in mind that, what Marx is criticizing here is not just LaSalle. it's also he's criticizing his own camp, right? As we, I think we've uh, mentioned before, the, the, the distinction between uh, the Eisenachers and the "quote unquote" Lasallians wasn't the separation existed but it was more like tactical questions that, like, oh, very wide divergence in theory, especially sometimes like the LaSalleans had a better uh, better grasp of uh, Marx sometimes, it would seem. But yeah, um, here, I'm going to read it. So this is uh, from Mosul's letter to his father. Quote, If it, communism, in brackets, appears in its crudest form immediately after property has been represented as a prerequisite of state freedom in the Constitution of 1795, it develops further in 1796 in the shape of the conspiracy of Bebouf and his comrades. Is elaborated into the socialist theories of Saint-Simon and Fourier, both of whom must be countered as the communist by virtue of their basic thinking, turns into communism proper, divides more into various sects such as the travailleur égalitaire and the Refo- the Reformists, and finally emerges in its highest form so far that of a Ica- Icaric communism, founded and represented by Cabot. Even in this form, however, and in spite of its manifestly profound and true significance, it remains abstract and one-sided. End quote. And it's... Uh interesting to think about that a little bit because when marx like starts his critique of uh, of the like the, the salgan you know labor notes labor voucher thing marx is like brings it back to like uh, louis blanc and basically one of his arguments is that Lasalle is like regressing from blanc that he's he, he's crude even compared to, like, the crude reformists of the past. Because if I remember correctly, I think Blanc said, uh, you know, to each according to his ability, each according to his need. I think he actually did say that, even as a reformist. It's a
1: good yeah. principle. Mm-hmm. It's, and, you know, perhaps better than slogging off uh, most of society. And again, like, Marxism is popular in... Societies that you know, what we're calling narrowly the working class isn't the majority of society, right? Mm. And yeah. so, when we're, when we're going to be reading what's next, we have to like keep that in mind. What we're mm. calling the working class here is not like this broader Engelsian vision of all the working classes throughout history or something. It's this much tighter notion. It sort of corresponds to like semi skilled industrial proletariat, or you know whatever, however you want to put it. Like,
2: yeah, one of the uh, one of the things to keep in mind is I think for Marx and Engels, working class is not instantly like you can't instantly equate it with the proletariat as like right, you know, the, the the pure like yeah, yeah, they yeah. have they have nothing but their chains, they only have their labor power to give out, and for Marx and Engels from my understanding, they weren't, like... What mattered to them is having a proletariat that's, like, not only, like, significant, like, portion of the population, but also strategically, like, within cities, that is, in choke points, right?
0: Right. Well, and that's the advantage that the, that the industrial proletariat specifically has.
2: Yeah. And, and yeah, also have to keep in mind that um, a lot of... Um, Marx and Engels, like, thinking about how a revol- a social revolution comes about is from, you know, the OG French Revolution. And they, you know, when they talk about, they understand that the, you can, you can find this in the contemporary, um, to, to, to this, I think a little bit before, but in Marx's uh, marginal notes of uh, Bakunin's Statism and Anarchy, He's like, you know, we we have to do something for the peasantry to make their their their, their working a, a lot better, and we can't beat them over the head. Which, you know, is interesting to think about. That, yeah, that, yeah. That, that, but also completely makes sense once you kind of understand it, that for for Marx, he never kind of um, let go of you know. The the, the the schematic that he that he studied as a young man in the french Revolution even late in life like Ingalls could could like talk to like um what's her name um Ver yes Vera Sosulich, where he would still he would talk about 1789 1793 that like the narodniks would be sort of like the sort of like petty bourgeois radicals that would like push the revolution to the social, Want the political, like sort of revolution to the social one, from their actions.
0: Well, yeah, you want to basically. I mean, any moment like that where the previous, like existing order, is cracked and nothing new that's determinant has stepped in its place, opens up all these kind of possibilities, and you act, you can activate uh, sections of society that previously didn't have skin in the game because the possibility of like a more egalitarian social order is now in play, but if the situation closes and one class gains power, then you're back to, maybe, at least in the case of the Enlightenment revolutions, a historically uh, progressive situation, but it's still not one that promises to, you know, resolve the whole dialectic of history or whatever and the uh, relationships of, like, subordination that have defined class society since the beginning. Um, And so, yeah, he wants to... He wants to realize that potential that was missed in the era of bourgeois revolutions. You know, I think they were also influenced by their experiences in 1848. Yep. Um, and later, even you know, much later, the Paris Commune, which probably fed into some of his attempting to rework uh, some of his larger pr- critique of political economy. Uh, but yeah, they were they were informed by a lot of different things. But there is a lot of tensions that remain within marx's work like for instance with the peasantry where part of the there's a problem where the peasantry is not historically is not historically progressive a lot of times not politically progressive because but then this gets, in, yeah this within, gets I continue as you can say yeah you know because of because of their set of social relationships but at the same time there are in certain cases aspects of their moral economy that could potentially within a context being led by the proletariat Uh, nurtured in a way that can be integrated into socialism under the right circumstances. At least that's the idea. Mm, Sorry. mm -hmm. Sorry. What were you going to say?
2: Oh yeah. Um, Yeah. And what you were saying before, um, uh, one of the big problems in uh, how, you know, quote unquote, if we can talk about it, Orthodox Marxism and quote, like approach to peasant question was a lot of, um, you know, Reading what Marx has to say about the peasantry in France and just transposing it everywhere, just you know, being like, oh, well, peasants are you know, atomized and like the basis of the of Bonapartism. And but, but the moment you factor in, you know, what Marx and Engels were not only saying, you know, during um, the 1848 uh, revolutions and like the, the aftermath, but also you know, Marx's later uh, appreciation, sort of like dialectical appreciation of uh, the, the Russian peasant communes or other sort of like, quote unquote, primitive communes. Uh, it goes to show that what he didn't like about the French peasantry was the fact that it was like, sort of like, the way it had like, um, the way it had worked out in France was basically Petty pro- proprietorship and individualized, but if like the the, the communal aspect of uh, the peasantry still being there was a good like was a good thing for Marx that he like oh it's not fully gone so we could start off on a better foot that like if every all the peasants were legally and sort of like arranged as like you know the the petty proprietor petty propriety owner
1: yeah yeah and, and anyway like if we think that anything like a communist revolution could happen in the 21st century as uh as i kind of went off about on one of my favorite episodes of from alpha to omega when we read the 18th premiere and we were looking at the you know the contrast between peasants and proletariat arguably there's a bit of re <laughs> with a lot of the promising green shoots that Marx saw in the proletariat and we're going to have to grapple with a pretty different kind of working class that has a lot of inconvenient elements anyway so it's maybe better to open it up instead of to embrace the Lasallian slogan that's going to be critiqued here
2: Well, right. uh, it's also, it's also um, there's something very interesting uh, that the uh...
1: like 12 minutes in I'm like Cracking open a yeah. cold one.
2: That's, mm. uh,
1: well, I haven't read a word of Marx.
2: <laughs> yeah. Okay, so I'll, I'll read uh, my last little thing. To... All right, so here. Quote, Mardov, on the eve of the Bolshevik coup d'etat, associated his motion condemning the Bolsheviks in the pre-parliament with two fundamental conditions, immediate land reforms and decisive action to bring about peace. He formulated the main points of the Bolshevik program. Another quote. In seizing power, Lenin, his party, and his allies only undertook to give body to the promises expressed by his predecessors, who, moved to the, who proved to be incapable of implementing them. Lenin said in, in May 1918, we are, in our, we are now approximately at the level attained in 1793 and 1870. All of them were silting out of the French Revolution even then. And what happened basically, you know, with the peasantry in Russia during the the Russian revolution was quite, there's like a lot of analogies to be made with what happened to the peasantry under, you know, the French revolution.
1: Yeah. Not always the ones that they thought were going to pan out, but yeah, like there's that cunning of history that, uh, kind of evades the systemifications at, at the time. But in retrospect, we could still see a rhyme, um, yeah, this is all a good. Lead up, complete sidebar. I haven't smoked weed in a month. Uh, um, I don't know. If good I, for you. My, yeah, thank you, thank you. I, you know, usually take breaks here and there, but I've just been chilling so hard out here that, like,
0: you don't need it. You are high on life.
1: Yeah, I, I kind of am, though. Yeah, kind of like high as balls on life, and that's uh, it's some good. It's some good. So with that, with that positivity, let's let's get into this. Sally slogan. <laughs> So, number four, the emancipation of labor must be the work of the working class in relation to which all other classes are only one reactionary mass, end quote. The first clause is taken from the introduction to the rules of the international, but improved. There it is said, the emancipation of the working class must be conquered by the workers themselves. Here, on the contrary, the working class has to emancipate what? Labor. Let him understand who can. In compensation, the subordinate clause, on the other hand, is a Lasallian quotation of the purest sort, in relation to which the working class, all other classes are only one reactionary mass. In the Communist Manifesto, it is stated, quote, of all. All the classes that stand face-to-face with the bourgeoisie today, the proletariat alone is a really revolutionary class. The other classes decay and finally disappear in the face of modern industry. The proletariat is its characteristic product. The bourgeoisie is here conceived as a revolutionary class, as the bearer of large-scale industry in relation to the feudal lords and the, quote, lower middle class who desire to maintain all the social positions that are the creation of obsolete modes of production. Thus, these classes do not form together with the bourgeoisie, merely one reactionary mass.
0: Yeah. Yeah, so I mean, and you basically see, he's making this proletariat working class distinction. And when he talks about the classes decaying and disappearing in the face of modern industry, he's not referring to everybody goes to work in a factory. It's that the increasing efficiency of industrial production is massively disruptive on the economy and the livelihoods of every other class, which was borne out by history.
2: Modern industry, basically, for Marx, you know, it affects the, the it takes over the the production and reproduction of society, right? In, in a way that, like, <sighs> the, the previous, like, mode of production cannot stand up to, like, the sort of, you know very like efficient, scientific, you know, calculated, like ex- like s- extraction of like relative surplus value out of the production process. And all, all this, you know, once you have that going for like, you know, consumer goods, right? The ability to pump out a mass of consumer goods is a way to like, it facilitates the like the ability to have you know people who just subsist on um their ability to sell labor power because the value of their labor power is tied to like not only like you know the subsistence that that, that they need to like reproduce their labor power but also the sort of moral ethical factors that also uh, are are implicated because it's, it's actually kind of uh, important that Marx does believe that because otherwise um, you just collapse into the iron law of wages where it's just, you know, just subsist- it's just like subs- subsistence and so it's always just going to be that. And there's, uh, well, it also goes back to his uh, polemic we're proud on uh, about strikes. And whether, you know, people should strike for higher wages or if it will be counterproductive to do that. And it's not un- uninteresting because uh, LaSalle didn't meet Proudhon. And um, Robertus, his, um, his friend, did point out to him in a letter that he was, uh, LaSalle was like um, reworking the ideas that uh, Proudhon had in one of his uh, last books.
1: On the other hand, The proletariat is revolutionary in relation to the bourgeoisie because having itself emerged on the basis of large-scale industry, it strives to strip off from production the capitalist character that the bourgeoisie seeks to perpetuate. But the manifesto adds that the lower middle classes become revolutionary in view of their impending transfer into the proletariat. From this point of view, therefore, it is, again, nonsense to say that they, together with the bourgeoisie and with the feudal lords into the bargain, form only one reactionary mass in relation to the working class. Did we proclaim to the artisans, small manufacturers, etc., and peasants during the last elections? In relation to us, you, together with the bourgeoisie and feudal lords, form one reactionary mass. Yeah, I mean, this yeah, draws out... What a weird, arrogant, minoritarian, like, view of worker struggles this is. And, and you know, like, how it actually does divide a bunch of people that are going to be reconfigured into the value form anyway. When I said re-peasant, re-peasantification, it's, it's an analogy. When, you know, when someone like, even someone as smart as Robert Brenner talks about, like, neo-feudalism or whatever, these things are all, like, these things are all, the only way is that these things make sense as an analogy, right? Like, because right. it's all going to be mediated by the value form. It's not going to be yeah. non-capitalist. Like, it's... Yeah,
0: feudalism can and often means a lot of different things.
1: Yeah, you can't take these things at face value and literally, like, it's just, like, it has to be understood in reference to, you know, what we already understand about capitalism and how it mediates things. So, the, the fact that people are, are going to look at the weird different forms of... I mean, I would simply call it different types of workers. Like, I have no problem saying that shit. But I, I you know, we're playing Marx's language game here. Um, so, you know, people that are not yet, you know, properly working class because they haven't been liquidated properly. Whatever. Like, I think by the time you actually get, by the time you, you get to capital's, like, value form stuff, you shouldn't even have to make that, you shouldn't even really have to make these qualifications. <laughs> like, all those previous forms of being are going to be regimented by peace wages or whatever anyway.
2: And there's, yeah, for, and it's strange because, first of all, all is, like, quite literally, you know, a populist in the sense of, like, he was not only a workerist, but when you read his speech, he's like, oh, yeah, uh, when I'm talking about um, the proletariat, he talks about it as if it's already, like, 80% of the population or something, which tells you that uh, something's gone wrong with uh, what he thinks, w- his understanding of, like, capitalism and, like, wage wages, which is another thing that, you know, Marx brings up, like, he doesn't fucking understand what the, what the, the purpose of wages and labor power in uh, right. ideology. Yeah, I, I-
1: I think in Belgium, it tipped over 50% and everywhere else it didn't, like in history. Like, I think it's only Belgium where it tipped over like 50% of the population. Everywhere else, it never did.
2: And what's really interesting, though, is that because he understood the, you know, that he already had like, quote unquote, like the mass with him. It's why he was such an ardent, like, you know, Democrat, quote unquote, for like universal suffrage because because you just oh yeah you can uh since uh, all people are mostly already on the good side all it takes for them is to just kind of like uh, realize their own their own interests and then just use the state to real to, to realize their their purpose as as an as sort of um co- collectivity this comes up later in the education part of um Marx's attack on the Lasallian socialism because you know the the, the Lasallian attitude to like the state and education uh, you find out you find that in the neo neo you know texts like catechism on the, what a social what a social revolution is and for for the French radicals you know they they really did have this conception of you know the sort of like a Spartan state that takes over that like owns you know the, the, the owns children and it's its responsibility to like educate them to be good citizens, enlightened citizens.
1: Yeah, they read the Republic a little too on the nose. Yeah, not, not so good.
0: He, Marx is Marx is at least in the manifesto a little sanguine about the revolutionary potential of the lower middle classes. Seems like historically that kind of splits
2: yeah um yeah it it, it does
1: um yeah pleasant in his face like the day after he writes it we yeah. still repeat it like
0: yeah I mean there is there is something to sort of the thing it's it seems to happen more often with like uh intelligentsia and the sort of uh overproduction of elites uh
2: which is something that also happened in uh, Italy actually. And um was one of the factors that uh, led to fascism is like this this overproduction of like intellectuals and of like state civil servants not having anything else to do no like future and then well one way to remedy that is to just ha- have to be constructing this uh, to do statecraft because that keeps people, people busy. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah I think in some ways like the United States has resolved this, problem within the system i think all the time about the numerous fbi busts of like muslim teenagers with like uh iq like mental deficiencies or mental illness that were they fbi some fbi agent will just like set something up and then convince some kid to go in on and then arrest him like it was his idea and then be like look we foiled terror plot you know and i think a lot of that is just you know, guys trying to justify why they have a job. (laughs) Oh, yeah.
2: There's definitely some of that.
0: Or, like, if you ever seen the movie Richard Jewell where that guy foiled a bomb thing and they tried to pin it on him because they didn't know who did it?
2: I think there's a lot of that
0: in, like, the administrative bloat of the American federal state. And this guy's just, yeah, especially within, like, security stuff and the police and so forth, it's a lot of people, a lot of bureaucrats have found a means by which to... Uh, weaponize the very forces that are like tearing society, American society apart and make it worse while giving themselves a job. It's pretty, uh, it's pretty handy.
1: Okay. LaSalle knew the Communist Manifesto by heart as his faithful followers know the Gospels written by him. If, therefore, he has falsified it so grossly, this has occurred only to gloss over his alliance with absolutist and feudal opponents against the bourgeoisie. In the above paragraph, moreover, his oracular saying is dragged in without any connection to the botched quotation from the rules of the international. Thus, it is here simply an impertinence, and indeed not at all displeasing to Herr Bismarck, one of those cheap pieces of insolence in which the Marat of Berlin deals. Yeah, I see what you're saying about the French Revolution, just the specter of it hovering over his head all the time, like the
2: Marat, um, Berlin. <laughs> what he's you about LaSalle here? Um, he he says it uh, somewhere else in like um in, in the letter Marx um tells Engels to like okay, you should write a review of Capital, but also do it as if you're being cri- you're you're being critical of me to just get it in the press and he, in it, he says uh, something as, as uh, like this. Whereas Mr. Lassalle hurled abuse at the capitalists and, the flatter, and flattered the backwoods, the backwoods Prussian squ- squirarchy, Mr. M- M- Mr. Marx, on the contrary, shows the historical, quote, necessity of capitalist production and severely criticizes the landed aristocrat who does not but consume... Just at how little he shares the ideas of his renegade disciple LaSalle on Bismarck's vocation for ushering in an economic millennium, he has not merely shown in his previous protests against, quote, royal Prussian socialism, but he openly repeats it on page seventy sixty two seventy sixty three, where he says that the system prevailing in France and Prussia at present will subject the continent of Europe to the regime of the Russian clout, if not checked in good time. It's pretty, uh clear about that there's in in, in like capital yeah he doesn't he doesn't directly he, he does talk about he in his methodology he hasn't introduced you know the landlords yet but if you read like just a section on like primitive accumulation you can get you can get a feel that this is not supposed to be flattering for the the landlords and they're implicated in this as well because land as well as like you know commodities are social relations mediated through things which is yeah it's what he says at the the last chapter about colonization
1: harry cleaver recommends that you read part 6 of capital 1st to make the political stakes more clear
2: um i guess you could although i think also just a good you know, introduction piece to just kind of uh to go over, like, some of the subtext of Capital would be probably maybe better, although I would know a piece I would be satisfied with that would say everything that needs That's to be That's kind said. of the thing. Yeah. Yeah,
1: so, like...
2: But there's a couple sp- 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 of... Po-
1: Especially if you're dealing with like students of color and like people that are concerned with colonization, like Mm -hmm. it it brings out the stakes a lot. I've, I've, you know, I've never actually read it that way. I just always like, it's also, um, it's just an interesting thing to think about, you know, it's like, what if you just cut out the Phantom Menace and then, you know, you put a, you know, you do machete order and you watch it and it's just like, I've never done it. It's just interesting to think about.
2: Also interesting to bring up that, you know, a lot of, uh, the, the the French communists were uh, pro colonization. That's so yeah the 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 <laughs> they were and if you read Marx's argument, you can also see that the, it's a it's an attack on on that view too. This, because for you can kind of get the feel that for Marx, you know, the sort of like communist socialist colonization is just its is ut- it it is utopian, even if you know a utopia doesn't have to be like just like in the clouds, you know, just in your head. You can you can be a practicing utopian.
1: It's the for the fanatical practice of spreading basically capitalism, like <laughs> and calling it something else. Like,
2: God, I it's the funniest is you know when you read about the diecarians, the 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 Capet guys. And then you find out, like, some of them just convert to Mormonism later. So, <laughs> it's, it's, it's Thanos adding yeah, the, the Infinity not. Gems to his gauntlet and just like, oh, okay. okay. I, I, I've got my French communism. I've got my Republican social social republic. Oh, let me add oh, Mormonism. That's what I was missing. It's only slightly uh,
1: more patriarchal than a lot of that movement. Anyway. Uh moving on to let's uh, move to plank five here wait actually let's double back I have there one will- last
2: I have one last thing to say about um, the, the the line that like Marx is criticizing here uh, <clears throat> when he says like emancipation of labor like for uh, Marx yes. for Marx the emancipation of labor is the historical you know it's the It's a historical product of capitalism because the emancipation of labor is that like, oh, you don't even have the land. You just have, you're just going to end up, you have this tendency towards just having your labor power, only your chains and everything else is commodified and social relations. You can only, you know, access with this, with what you earn from your, from the wage.
1: This is a good point, actually. This is—it's the, the double freedom, right? Like, yeah, it's the double freedom. On, yeah. on, on the one hand, it, Which, and the double—the double freedom is a bit problematic because it's too optimistic. Because on the yeah. one hand, you you are liberated from property, so all you have is your ability to work. <laughs> that sucks. Um, but on the other side, you're supposed to be—slavery is supposed to be over. You know, you're no longer serf bound to the land. You have legal rights. You, there is supposed to be some kind of. You know, bourgeois right as expressed through some sort of liberal governance which just does not happen in every form of capitalism and is a dramatic overstatement of what was going to happen now it does happen in some places there is revolutionary change in a lot of governments that accompanies this yada yada whatever but it's by no means as universal as your property just not being yours anymore
2: and sometimes like marx himself knew if if you just look at the first chapter of volume two with, you know, his Russian studies in mind, you s- you can clearly see that he knows that there are, there are intermediate, like, arrangements between total emancipation of labor and then sort of, like, yes, weird, right. legal and practical constructs, because like, all the, the people who, like, you know, had sort of, like, quote-unquote, like, semi-feudal, absolutist states that wanted to, like, modernize, they... They couldn't just say okay we're just gonna emancipate labor and that's it because if they were to do that it's complete complete like chaos social chaos that you were just going to do that by like decree and just you know like all of them knew that they had to like plan it out and go and go bit by bit because they had seen what had, had happened before in europe like it, it, it wasn't when marx was like doing the like oh it's, You know, his famous line about like the England showing like the image of uh, the the future to others if they hop on this uh, the capitalist road. Like, it's not, it's not empty abstraction for Marx or for like Sergei Witte or like people who were like in charge of trying to like industrial to like come up with industrial policy and for, for. for a czar, like it's, uh they couldn't just like this. Like it, 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 it took, like it literally like took Stalinism to dispossess like the peasants. <laughs> like it took a long time. Like even and as we as we start we started the this podcast, you know, talking about, um, you know, the the emancipation of the peasantry and you know the alliance in the bourgeois revolutions. Like there's there's a let's say like there's a reason there's a reason Marx was so negative about Russia and it wasn't just like okay there's like bigotry there of course yes of course but also it was not uncommon for like 1848ers to just completely hate you know Russia for because of the exact role that it played. Uh, the gendarme of europe and the jailer of nations yeah and f- funny thing is um moses has advocated the saint-simonian triple alliance of like you know england germany and france against russian barbarism mm-hmm. yeah and um you you find this exactly the same um, this exact same attitude in like someone like Japotinsky who's like yeah look uh, he's he, he's like yeah but Russia kind of like they need to be imperialized because it civilizes them because also just kind of like you know rabid pogromists or something. <laughs> Damn
1: so, Stalinism really is like like a really funny cunning of history like. Statement on double freedom, where you have this like very concentrated, like you know, socialist primitive accumulation, while there's nothing like functioning bourgeois right, like not even close. And there's banners of Marx everywhere.
2: There used to even be uh, banners of LaSalle at the Comintern Congresses until like 1926 or maybe a bit later, but yeah. <laughs> yeah
1: marx wouldn't be happy about that
2: oh he already was not fucking happy like knowing that the there was like banners of him and Lassalle, like already <laughs> he, he didn't God. want that
1: big grave like look i when i when i was younger you know uh i i went to marx's grave marx like marx's big cartoon grave that the soviet union installed or whatever like it wasn't the soviet Union, but it was it was
0: like, uh, it's like the local communist party i think
1: yeah 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 like the, the pre- predecessor to the the uh, you know official Marxists, they installed like uh, over the objections of the Marx family. Marx actually has a humble grave somewhere in Highgate Cemetery. That's the, basically his real grave. And then yeah, there's it's, the,
0: it's like it's like fifty yards away. Yeah, and then there's the big
1: the big beefy one that um, you know people try to blow up at, or. Or people leave flowers there and have little religious experiences there, and I totally had a religious experience at that big blast of Marx that he totally didn't want there, and totally missed his real grave. And I can't think of a better, more poetic image <laughs> for the representation of Marx.
2: I mean, it also ha- it also happened to Lenin, um, and ugh,
1: well, he made God... more of it, I'd say.
2: Uh, yeah, it, let, let's. I th- oh, it's true with Lenin. I, I sometimes I get the impression that he kind of knew how cooked it was, and he just kind of like kind of gave up a little bit on his ideas and was sort of like, oh, it's it's tr- I don't know what to fucking make of Lenin, which is strange. I thought I knew, but the more I dig into it, the more I'm like, how self aware was he that this was not this was like a disaster. Sometimes you have to wonder. <sighs>
0: well, it seems like all those like old Bolsheviks were just like essentially like on the spent like all those years essentially uh, perpetually on this in the verge of a nervous breakdown.
2: <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. And uh, the, 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 the thing that's that's really sort of a uh, cherry on top of uh, the, the Sunday for all this is, you know, Lenin's. Lenin being embalmed was like. Um, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's a mix of like. People did it, wanted to do it, because they literally thought that maybe they could resurrect them. But like, unironically, it wasn't even a joke. They they were like. <laughs> thought it they was a common
1: Orthodox custom, right? Like, because yeah, of the, and, the doctrine of the body, like. Um, oh, oh, yeah. Being and, resurrected.
2: But But also, there's the aspect of like, you know this is one of the things where it's probably just a coincidence, but sometimes I don't know. It's the thing where like, uh, the count, you know, Countess uh, Sophie Hatfield, you know, LaSalle's patron, want to embalm LaSalle and, you know, <laughs> start to, to tour around with his body before the authorities just like <sighs> crapped it down. And then, uh, yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. And, the once you know like Stalin was like a big a big like LaSalle head. Ooh wow. That according to Molotov, it, it, it according to Molotov was Stalin who insisted on, you know, uh, on uh, on preserving uh, Lenin's body in a mausoleum or something, it's like oh no. What, what, what it? <laughs> did he get this from that from that? But either I well he was also a seminarian, so either way it could be you know, it's j- just Good practical politics I, we could say. A yeah <laughs> good
1: desperate nihilistic Machiavellian stuff, like
2: just just, just keeping the 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 the, <laughs> the leader, the Führer, the Duce, the icon to just like wave around, just have there as
1: that's uh that's a degradation, not even the Marat of Berlin I had to put up with. Well, anyway. Number five. The working class strives for its emancipation, first of all, within the framework of the present-day national state, conscious that the necessary result of its efforts, which are common to the workers of all civilized countries, will be the international brotherhood of peoples, end quote. LaSalle, in opposition to the Communist Manifesto and to all earlier socialism, conceived the workers' movement from the narrowest national standpoint. Here he is being followed, and this after the work of the international. It is altogether self-evident that to be able to fight it all, the working class must organize itself at home as a class, and that its own country is the immediate arena of struggle insofar as its class struggle is national. Not in substance, but as the Communist Manifesto states, in form. But the framework of the present-day national state, for instance, the German Empire, is itself in its turn economically within the framework of the world market, politically within the framework of the system of states. Every businessman knows that German trade is at the same time foreign trade, and the greatness of Air Bismarck consists to be sure, precisely in pursuing this kind of international policy." Yeah, I think that's um, it can't be overstated, the amount of nightmare that's packed into the form determination of the national arena taking out whatever communist content is happening in a workers' movement that's trying to pack itself into, um, you know, that's trying to use the the available arena. Again, it's not, it's not a crazy idea, the available arena to shape itself. I used to think maybe if it happened really quick, you know, maybe you could avoid the form determination, but now I kind of, I just sort of wonder about all the selection mechanisms for like, Getting noticed on that on that kind of stage,
2: I can also, um, I mean, Marx himself, um, in an interview with, like, a, uh, yeah, in eighteen seventy nine, an interview with, uh, yeah, the Chicago Tribune, of of all places, uh, he had this essay uh, No socialist need predict that there will be a bloody revolution in Russia, Germany, Austria, and possibly Italy if the Italians keep on in the policy they're now pursuing. The deeds of the French Revolution may be enacted again in those countries. That is apparent to any political student. But those revolutions will be made by the majority. No revolution can be made by a party, but by a nation, end quote. That's, that's Marx.
1: Right. And so yeah. on the one hand, there's this democratic hope of the nation, which is often, you know, kind of where he's coming from when he makes reference to the nation. As we talked about on our... Um, um, actually existing nationalisms episode, there's a kind of controversy about how to interpret nation and in Marx because there's like three words for nation mm, in yeah. German and Marx is using this one associated with sort of liberal, democratic, whatever, or, you know, details are hazy, but he's not using like Volk, let's say. He, he,
2: um, he's, not, he's not doing the, the Fichte uh, address to the German nation thing, which... Um... I mean, you find a lot of social democrats like Liebknecht just quoting it in favor of it and just like, you know, oh, let's, it's just a copy of like, uh, yeah.
1: But there's drift. There's drift. And when you're in that kind of game, there is a strongest response in an oppositional game. And the strongest response in an oppositional game is the cheap pop for the home team. And mm-hmm. that can get you in all kinds of fucking trouble.
2: Or. You know, as a, a, as one of the uh, OG national Bolsheviks uh, said in a book that Lenin apparently uh, thought was pretty good, uh, said, uh, quote, according to the communist conception, all intellectual and manual workers belong to this active nation. LaSalle's national tactics are enjoying a resurgence and compromise the whole in conjunction with international tactics. End quote. Uh, that's when he was still, you know, laughing. Guy I'm quoting Stauffenberg, like still like on the left, part of uh part of the, um, oh, the anti-war uh Zimmerwald. It was part of the Zimmerwald, the left even calling for a new international
1: Yeah. So if if you're one of if you're one of these like DSA comic caucus people that can read Endnotes for and then go try to like do a politically motivated labor organizing effort, like God bless you, like don't don't let me depress you out of out of doing you know what you're trying to do there just make sure you collect that copy of endnotes for it close to your heart and you remember what happened last time that's all I'm saying
0: yeah I mean well you see here like the nexus of problems that there like, he, he is already aware that nation states exist within a larger like re- within a larger network and framework and even in some cases hierarchy of nation states and that you have to operate within that but the problem is, Politically, all politics takes place within the realm of the nation state. And so there's a certain degree of kayfabe there that you're kind of trapped within. Now, sometimes you can navigate that up until the point that there is some kind of war. (laughs) Because once the nations are in opposition to each other, then there is the degree of interclass alliances that make up a national body politic has to be consolidated for the war and that's where you're going to get fucked and so it seems like the only way the only way to navigate that potentially is to just accept that you're basically going to get beaten down for a while and then wait for wait essentially for the war to blow over or try and sabotage the war as it's going on but then how do you do that but if if you do that, immediately afterwards you have to you have to pretty much abolish it, in the nation state form. Otherwise, you're going to be subject to some kind of stab in the back narrative, right? Um, so, and you know, we, I mean, we think we're seeing we're sort of seeing right now the gravitational force of nationalist politics when there's some kind of like conflagration or confrontation of some sort. That's very hard rhetorically to wiggle your way out of
1: no it's very hard to get around
0: yeah yeah it's almost it's almost like a force it's like after 9-11 happened it was very difficult for anybody to speak any kind of reason to the situation even if you are and history is borne out that you are objectively correct about what the best way to handle that would have been it didn't it didn't matter it
1: doesn't matter if you're right it's uh, and and, you know frankly since the you know the israeli-palestinian conflict has picked back up I feel like we're back in 2001 and like, but you know, of course a different mirror image bizarre world one. And, you know, uh, not that, not that you're dealing with a completely asymmetrical situ- um Not that you're dealing with a complete situation. Um, wow. Let me try that again. Not that you're dealing with a completely symmetrical situation there, but you actually basically can't articulate the communist point of view, or if you're an anarchist, the anarchist point of view, like, the anarchists and the communists will get mad at you like like let alone you know people who are are suffering through it like uh, or the political actors that are trying to capitalize on on all the pain and suffering like it's not something you can really say national conflicts have a much stronger pull historically Uh, there's some good reasons for that like if you're you know, doing settler colonialism and crowding millions of people in open air prison, um, and it just—I don't know.
0: Good luck. It's it's important to note too. At the time that this was written, the nation state was—you could say—a relatively a relatively progressive, like historical form that was not also as determinate as it is now. It was it was it was a very different uh, it was a very different period.
1: I mean, there's always a little genocide of the nation state. You have to stamp out some differences. Let's just and our notions of historical progress now don't usually include genocide. So it's yeah, I know what you mean, but like, I don't know. It's hard for me to look at the formation of the nation state that way.
2: I mean, just the policy of nation state of having you know needing one language at the like at least like one administrative language to just you know, be able to coordinate everything that you have um, the, the role in uh, the state, like needing to, to have an educational policy because else like you, you can't, it makes it very hard on you to, to have like a, a working capitalism. If you don't have, you know, if you don't keep up like a minimum, so that you can actually compete on the world market.
0: Wait, and there need to be, there, well, yeah, there needs to be some kind of standardization so you can have economies of scale.
1: Right. And when you're doing that kind of regimentation and that level of uniformity, you are stamping out cultural difference. And it's never the... Even if it was some kind of grand AI arbiter that chose the most efficient thing or whatever metric you're going to optimize for, it would be creepy. But it, that's never how it happens. It's, you know, the Prussians, you know, gained hegemony over the Germans that they stamp out a bunch of the other customs or, or something like, or they, or the, you know, the side of the settler colonialists, you know, they might try to exterminate the native peoples, or they might try to weave them into the national narrative or something like there's always some element of that going on. So and I, you know, coming out of the 20th century reading all the socialist communist shit, you know, you wonder if if this stuff happened now, would it be on that kind of grand scale or would it of necessity kind of be on smaller scales or something? And these are the things that, that make me think that maybe it would have to be on some kind of smaller scale because otherwise you have to do some stuff that, at least where I'm sitting right now, like, like, uh, even now in Spain, like if you want to call it that, there's you know attempts to you know stamp out some of the regional languages, that that's in continuity with Francisco Franco <laughs> and, the, the, and the and the fascist like version of Spanish nationalism that you know d- didn't end up winning out you know in the 70s and such, but you know the scars still remain so much so that. When the far right party was elected in uh, Valencia, Vox, they banned uh, using the Valencian language um, in anything taxpayer funded. <laughs> um, so, so this is s- still like a living thing, even in Europe right now. Like, like let let alone the de- de- like the broader decolonial like settler colonial like aspect when you have people that are completely fucking different doing this like kind of thing. I don't know, that's just a long-winded way of saying, there'll be dragons here, there's some there's some really um, this is like uh, thinking hard about the, these national questions and, you know, maybe ethnic questions that are smaller than nation is, is one of, like, the hard-mode stuff for communists, it's just, you know it's the stuff that makes communists give up communist positions and you know, turn their backs, not only you know, not only on, like you know some other form of economics, but become anti-communist, and you know, you know, yeah. This is this is the stuff. This is some of the hard stuff, I think.
2: Um, oh yeah, and for socialism, this aspect of like nationalism, uh, it really all comes together. The First World War, where like it, it people's brains just get cooked, and it's like they see, basically, they see in war the. They, they 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 see the quote unquote revolutionary like aspect in war, and they just they just go all in on that. But but it it just like it basically just like leads you and you know inevitably you 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 just become a national socialist and I don't even mean that in like Nazi kind like I'm just mean like. You are going to think about politics in a national and socialist way, and, yeah, because you're, and you're the,
1: container, put, the container,
2: is the container determines
1: nation. the content. Like the, the 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 national arena ends up modifying what you were trying to inject into it. Like,
2: yeah, and and it's like oh, and when you if you reach that, you get to the point where like okay, so what if we blow up the container but then you're like oh wait that's just a revolutionary people's war and just oh well that doesn't solve that either either (laughs) because it 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 really comes to the fore again been reading a lot of about the og national bolsheviks and when you read their text they're just like oh but we're just we're just doing Marxism look um you know to just look at the the just look at the Paris Commune and like their their federalism and look at their nationalism look yeah I'm I'm totally consistent I just want you know a revolutionary people's war and also one of the things that is really off-putting in a way well off-putting not directly but off-putting in a way is that the, national, the OG national Bolsheviks didn't actually believe in socialism in one country precisely because they just wanted a revolutionary war where, yeah that's one of the interesting bits because they were so against because they were against you know they were like in, in, anti-imperialist and also probably like also not just probably but also just like German nationalists it would not make sense for them to To have socialism in one country because during a war the 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 borders get get blurred, and and a revolutionary state for them would just you know it wouldn't it would just annex everything.
1: I mean, if you think about what communism is, it couldn't survive without transforming a bunch of stuff around it, or else that those those rigid class hierarchies are going to come destroy it. Like, so it has this like built-in propaganda value or, you know, instrumentalization, ideological value for imperialism. Just just that built into the core of the concept, like, and um, at least in, in, in its modern sense. Um, so in a way, unfortunately, in a way, I kind of, like, I can see where they're coming from. They just see themselves as consistent Marxists and, like, in a broader sense of the word, not of course, you know, political team sports that we normally think of this stuff in, but in terms of like analysis and all that shit, you, they kind are like, and that's a problem. That's a problem. We just, we we have to we have to really like, if if there's a word that includes them and like, you know, your social democrats and your like, you know, anarchist autonomous types like that, you really like to read Capital, like. That word means fucking nothing, like.
2: And also, like for for Marx, um, one of the interesting things, you know, when people like to bring up his love for, like, uh, I think a real like a, a a Tory, this Tory politician that was like really against Russia, right? And Marx kind of like boosted him. And when you look at like um, what Marx had to say about him, there's like, well, uh, there, there's like, you know, reactionary, revolutionary. These words are their catchwords in, in foreign policy. And, you know, even he's subjectively reactionary, sure, but, you know, objectively revolutionary in his uh orientation. I mean, that's that's Marx. Like, he argues against the, He also... like You gotta, yeah. you gotta send and, me
1: that. You gotta send me... Why do you keep retweeting this guy Marx? I don't know. You just gotta read him the right way. Like, he's, he's fascinating, right? Like, oh, man. It's... Carl.
2: Uh, David or- Orkhart, yeah. Although it was... In 1853,
1: and fucking touch touch grass and, and put some and, lotion on your carbuncles, uh, man.
2: Yeah, and this ties in into um, LaSalle's um idea about the Anschluss. Yeah, he was uh, into that, yeah. and his idea of like he predicted uh, the future. Oh yeah, his, his idea of well. <laughs> the, the, no, I know the, the,
1: the, the, the Nazis took that from the, the socialist movement.
2: I mean the uh, the uh, the. First Austrian president after the war, Karl Renner, was like not only Lasalle's like biographer, but also edited his works. And also like when the Nazis were doing the Anschluss, he gave like he said, "Oh yeah, this is a good thing." And after the war, you know, when Stalin was like looking for a hatchet man in Austria, he the moment he the moment he heard that like Karl Renner was found alive, he was like, "Oh." hey, th- this guy this total opportunist I hate he's per- he's gonna be he's gonna be perfect Let- let's bring him on board same 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 guy was like same guy was also like cartoonishly anti-semitic and like co- would like talk about concentration campers right hmm. and oh yeah and it's oh. like yeah we're not giving you anything back like it's like yeah
1: it's really did predict the future
2: yes f- f- fun fun guys uh, also, was same guy called Renner, big into the war economy and sort of... Uh,
1: huh. Yeah. Fancy and, that.
2: Yeah. Oh, yeah. He was total... And the funniest thing is when the uh, at one time just kind of slips and says, Well, you know... When you look at like what Lenin says, you know about the construction of socialism, state economy, and war economy, and you look at Renner, they kind of agree on a lot of things. It's just like, of course, Lenin is the the real revolutionary here, but they 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 share a lot of con- in common. <laughs> it's well,
1: revolutionary, reactionary, you know, they both start with an R and end in a Y. If you were kind of <laughs> squint your eyes at it, you know,
2: yeah, but like Christ. but yeah, fr- from like the from the Austro Marxists like Renner to like Lenin and the Bolsheviks or like Laren or even the early, you know, sort of war communism warlord Trotsky they were really into the war economy that that their their whole plan was transplanting the, those principles and using it for revolutionary pur- purposes of the war economy it's uh yeah
1: should we yeah uh, should we scroll down a little bit <laughs> I've definitely finished my second. They, they, these are half beers. They sell half beers here. Especial. Uh, it's like a little cute 200. I guess, what, 250 milliliter? It's, it's super tiny. It's very cute. Um, so I'm, I'm like two of those deep. That's like one real beer. But I feel like, you know, I feel in my heart like I drink too. Um, and to what does the German Workers' Party reduces internationalism to the consciousness that the result of its efforts will be the international brotherhood of peoples, a phrase borrowed from the bourgeois league of peace and freedom, which is intended to pass as equivalent to the international brotherhood of working classes in the joint struggle against the ruling classes and their governments. Not a word, therefore, about the international functions of the German working class, and it is thus that it is to challenge its own bourgeoisie, which is already linked up in brotherhood, against it with the bourgeois of all other countries and Herr Bismarck's international intrigues. In fact, the commitment to internationalism of the program stands infinitely below even that of the Free Trade Party. The latter also asserts that the results of its efforts will be the International Brotherhood of Peoples, but it also does something to make trade international and by no means contents itself with the consciousness that all people are carrying on trade at home. Now, before, you know, we someone points us to like a Platypus review article about how see Marx would have been for free trade. We should, you know, we should be taking down the welfare state or some like, you know, right-wing think tank horseshit. Like, there is just something true about this that, you know, even someone as like bernie sanders was was not for open borders he didn't run on open borders you know what i mean whereas you might actually have one of these like free trade fucks that run on open borders and of course they really care you know more about freedom of capital but they don't mind freedom of you know international proletariat this gives them you know cheap workforce and that's fucked. There's a lot that's like, super exploitative about that in both the normal sense and like the sort of Maoist sense of super exploitation or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um,
2: Although it's clear here too that uh, once you know um, Marx is a critique of someone like Frederick List or, uh, mm-hmm. you know, but, and like List, like influence like uh, Sergei Vic... What's his name? Sergei Victor? Or... Victor. Not Victor, no Sergey. Oh, the the industrial one, the industrial, the big industrialization, uh, Russian industrialization guys, uh, for the Tsar. Like these people. Like, That's not Victor.
1: Well, I only know like like I only know like three of those people. That's not Sergey Victor. I thinking of...
2: Yes, yeah, Sergey. Uh, like the, yeah.
1: I could swear I remember a few things from the revolutions podcast. I don't know, and and yeah, and you know maybe I've said this before, but um, you know with liberals and with social democrats. Part of what makes like progress possible with people like that in office is their inconsistency. So when Bernie Sanders has to give way to people, you know, rightfully objecting to calling, you know, like a free borders policy, like a right wing Koch brothers proposal, like he has to deviate from, you know, the social democratic uh, tight keep keeping the labor market locked up. Like you know, kind of program, and pursue something more humane. <laughs> like I don't know, it it strikes me how with with the politicians that can actually get in an office, and I'm I'm actually I'm putting Bernie Sanders in there because you know he's like fucking senator. He is, you know, he does have some kind of position of of you know, I guess some import in, in the Biden like. In, in biden's like uh you know power structure in congress right like so and you know i've been i kept my eye on him for like a decade so it's hard for me not to comment on, on him a little bit like um you know you have to rely on their inconsistencies not their programmatic like principled like incursions like in order to get something beyond nationalist social democracy Whereas with certain types of, you know, reactionary, revolutionary, whatever, socialists, you know, they're much more hardline and, quote, principled, which means kind of inflexible.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, and he's he's pointing out there is a way for this sort of uh, in, interdependency of, you know, different national capitals in a, in a way creates a larger web of interdependency between different workers around the world. Which, within a capitalist contest, can have context can have both good and bad aspects, right? Right. For instance, the interdependency between the United States and China has served, I think, a pretty significant moderating effect on heightening uh, international competition between the two powers. Um, I would say even. The migration of workers uh from latin america into the united states i think is as brought closer in literal proximity peoples who have been massively affected by american regional hegemony <laughs> uh in the last in the, in the last century or so or a little bit beyond that actually um and, and in a way i think that's. Having members of those polities integrated into Amer- Americas in some way could also long term have like a moderating effect that would be good. The way Marx can here it here uh, is this could potentially serve the basis for there to be not only symbolic organizations set up you know, pro- proclaiming something like the Brotherhood of Peoples or the First International, which he refers to in a second. But there would be – because there would be this interdependent web of material relations, there would be a much, like, firmer basis for that than there would be of forming a sort of quasi-alt-UN of the most pissed-off radicals in Europe at the time.
1: (laughs) So moving on. The international activity of the working classes does not in any way depend on the existence of the International Working Men's Association. This was only the first attempt to create a central organ for that activity. An attempt that was a lasting success on account of the impetus that it gave, but which was no longer realizable in its first historical form after the fall of the Paris Commune. Bismarck's Norddeutsch was absolutely right when it announced to the satisfaction of its master that the German workers party had sworn off internationalism in the new program.
0: Yeah, and that's I mean that's that's kind of historically the biggest problem with internationalism is that it needs it needs something sturdier and more load-bearing in place so that it can actually stand up to stress when pressured.
1: And you know, where trade does that for the bourgeoisie there is sort of yet to be those kind of sturdy links between proletarians of all countries and the, the sort of cyber, you know, wired magazine, like cyber councilist sort of hopes that I was, you know, a little more linked into, maybe even just like a few years ago, um, seem very far off to me now. And, you know, if for no other reason, They seem, you know, they seem more capable of facilitating the way that the far right can capitalize off of this notion of brotherhood of peoples that are like strictly segregated and regulated within each other um, using the internet than it does seem to, you know, provide a basis for everyday people to, I'm not saying there's no links that are provided, you know, you can go look at what's happening in Gaza right now and feel for those people in a way that you could never do before, um, and that's meaningful. However, there's a lot of like perverted versions of that interaction, and political actors are increasingly good at cultivating those perverted versions to, you know, facilitate the exact opposite.
0: Yeah, they have they have to flood the zone with shit in order to muddy up any potential anything that would emerge from that whether that's the form of the i think what's going to be the inevitable great firewall of america uh to just content slurry and bots and all that stuff that drove liberals crazy but is kind of real
1: uh yeah they're right about that we will give them the w right like fuck
0: yeah
2: yeah anytime i post on twitter now i just gotta be careful not use like keywords instead or else like it's just gonna be fucking bots non it's insane.
0: <laughs> it's yeah. You really do see how increasingly regressive bourgeois rule is at this point. Uh, you know, I mean, I hate to sound like a decadence guy, but I, th- I think we they kind of keep reverse engineering fascism in different contexts because they don't have they don't have any way to they don't have any real good justification at this point to keep things going the way that they're going. And ver- the very means by which they keep profitability up is profoundly socially disruptive in ways that they just don't want to confront. And so, yeah, they just have to keep basically reverse-engineering fascism in some form or other in order to keep this thing going.
1: Listen, I'm, I'm for a good, like, left critical theory, like, you know, Frankfurt School anti-fascist version of decadence theory. And that liberality and you know progressive, whatever is progressive in capitalism, keeps sliding into this, you know, fascist Nash equilibrium. <laughs> like it does seem to be a thing. Um, it th- and you know, if you're a real hardcore like crisis theory person, yeah, you know, maybe you could tack it to the falling rate of profit. Who knows how those variables play out? But um, if theory means anything, it would hopefully be generalizing about how one relates to the other or at the very least tracking how regular of a pattern this is
0: that's it for this time thanks again to Constance for joining us and continuing to uh, read through this with us I hope you had a good holiday season since this came out in December although it was recorded a little bit earlier I uh, hope you have a good new year. I hope you're prepared for the torrent of bullshit and moralizing you're about to be subjected to on your phone regarding the upcoming election. Not looking forward to that. Nobody has said 2024 is going to be this their year. I haven't said it. You haven't said it. And uh, I feel like that's got to be... Part of why. I don't know. Alright, so... So until next time. Keep your boots clean, your feet out of the swamp, and your head in the revolutionary clouds of tomorrow.